So part of me is I think we've taught a generation of humans that nature is not alive and boring. And then of course we get very lonely because there's no relationship or interaction or stimulation with that kind of world around us. So we've really sort of deanimated the world for ourselves. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. You just heard Mark Anderson, Director of Conservation Science for the Nature Conservancy's Center for Resilient Conservation Science, explain a major misconception of the natural world that hinders environmental and sustainability efforts. Esri Conservation Solutions Director David Gadsden investigates how geospatial technology is helping the Nature Conservancy capture a more dynamic view of biodiversity and climate change. Hello, Mark, and welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. Great to be here. Thank you, David. Mark, you're a 27-year veteran of the Nature Conservancy with a doctorate in ecology. The last 12 of those years have been leading a team that's been investigating the effect of climate change on biodiversity and exploring solutions to that extraordinary challenge. You've made some significant discoveries that have upended popular notions of how to best preserve habitats and biodiversity. Could you just summarize some of that emerging knowledge about the natural world being aware of our presence and and perhaps our connectivity to it? Boy, connectivity is very interesting topic. So people talk about climate change like it's a threat. And it is a threat, but it's it's something quite different than your standard threat. You know, it's a change in the ambient conditions of the planet. You know, it's our temperature and moisture regimes are all changing. And because that's happening, nature has to shift and change and move in order to stay in sort of balance with the climate. So climate change is not the kind of threat you just get rid of, you know. The threat really is, can we change? Can we move? Can things relocate from where they are now to where they will be in the future? And that's, that's the connectivity challenge that keeps me up at night. Let me just say, that's hard for people, you know. And it's even, I think it's even harder for a lot of animals. So one of the most vulnerable parts of life is adolescence. It's when you have been raised by your family and now you've got to move on, you know. And in our own world, you know, we sort of kick our kids out at about 18 years. So we've already invested 18 years in them, but then we push them out and we we say, you know, you're out, you're on your own now. Go do your thing. But in fact, that's not true at all. You know, they go out into this big social network. They, they still have us. They have their relatives, they have peers, they have friends and relations they've built over time. They have, you know, employers, they have schools and teachers. And it's through that whole social network that humans become humans. That's how you learn to be an adult, by moving out and moving in the social network. So when you start thinking about the movement of species, you have to start thinking about how do we bring that whole social network along? You know, it can't just be one bear gets over there somehow, you know, we transport them there. There's a lot of what we call relocations and reintroductions, which are when you transport things to new places and release it. Failure rates are like 89%. So we've started really trying to model connectivity. We call it 
climate flow. And it, we, talk, we talk about it as the gradual movement of populations in response to the climate. And we've been trying to model how can that really occur across the landscape. And it's a much more sophisticated model than, you know, like your connect the dot model that you did in grade school where you're just drawing lines between places. You know, I, I didn't study ecology, but my perception is like the traditional view was a very fiercely competitive discipline, right? Species out there really competing to survive, you know, sort of against one another. But to this earlier question, has there been any new findings about um, sort of mutual aid and, and sort of species helping one another in these challenging adaptation situations? Absolutely. So. You know, competition is a real thing and it's out there in nature. So that, that hasn't gone away, but uh, mutualism, shared responses, reciprocity, you know, those have all been now very well tested and they're showing up everywhere. I, I think the, you know, the most dramatic example has been in plants really where in the last 20 years, just breakthroughs on resource sharing in trees you know, lots of, well, it's not just trees, trees and grasslands. A lot of those systems where we thought the trees were really competing intensely with each other, turned out that the underground, they are linked. You know, most of our forests and grasslands are linked together through a root network. It's a, it's root and fungi, you know, intertangled. And that through that root network, they're sharing resources with each other. And even old trees, old trees that collect a lot of carbon, you know, tend to share it with a lot of their younger trees and, and nurture young seedlings and saplings and help them grow. And if a tree gets injured, sometimes if they're plugged into that network, the network will support them, you know, while they recover until they can grow some of their biomass back. You even see like broadleaf trees that, that really photosynthesize intensely in the summer sharing more carbon with conifer trees, which don't do much in the summer, you know, because they have those little needles. But then in the winter, it reverses and the conifers are actually collecting more carbon and sharing it with broadleaf trees. So it's a, you know, it's a whole world that we're just beginning to understand. And I would imagine that presents new challenges based on this threat of climate change. Is there some high level guidance of what needs to happen for us to sort of achieve those outcomes? A lot of my research is on what would a network look like, you know, if achieved in the U.S. that would actually sustain diversity. You know, what are the, and what are the ingredients that go into that network? It starts with finding places that are more resilient to climate change, and conserving those places. And there's a lot of spatial complexity to where those things are actually happening on the landscape. And there are places in the landscape that are very vulnerable to climate change. They experience more change. You know, they're hit more often with, with uh, extremes. And then there are other places on the landscape that are much more buffered from climate change. So there's spatial uh, texture to it. And we've been focusing a lot on those areas that are more buffered. And it turns out those are places mainly that have lots of microclimates. So uh, you've seen these, I'm sure, David, you know, if you're walking up a, if you're walking in the spring up a, a south-facing slope, it could be nice and hot. You take you know, take your jacket off. The sun's hitting the slope. 
you get over that ridge and then you there's snow still all over the north facing slope. And so you get like temperature differences that can be 10 or 15 degrees, which is really more than we're expecting from climate change. And you get up on the ridge, you get wind is blowing and you're exposed and it's cold. And then down in the valley, it's wet and it's collecting water. So you get moisture difference, temperature differences. And it turns out that places on the landscape that have lots of those microclimates, those are places where species can persist for a long time because they can just move around locally and find their climate. You know, if, if it gets too extreme in one area, they can just move to the other side of the slope or move around. They don't actually have to leave. And we call those places that have connected microclimates resilient sites. They're physical places on the ground that are likely to be more resilient and places where species have refugia or turnover is slower. So Mark, your team at TNC has leveraged all of the scientific knowledge and hard work in data collection and analyzing the results into actually a national resilient land mapping tool. Can you describe that tool for us and, and its benefit to national conservation efforts? You know, it's funny, we've been talking about all sorts of philosophical questions in conservation, but really what I do most of the time is very techy. <laughs> we have a, a team of spatial analysts, spatial ecologists, and we've been working on creating a live web map and the data that goes with it that will allow people to look at any place on the landscape. It's called the Resilient Land Mapping Tool. Anywhere in the U.S., you can zoom into your backyard or to a forest nearby or a national park, and you can measure the resilience of that area based on the microclimates, how many microclimates, how connected they are, what sort of soil is there, what the landforms are. You can measure that. You can look and see how it's positioned in terms of some, some of those climate flow population movement areas. You can look at areas that have been recognized for biodiversity value by the state wildlife action plans or by the Nature Conservancy's eco-regional plans where they've identified viable populations of rare species or intact natural communities. And you can even measure the carbon and get estimates of above ground and below ground forest carbon. And you can look at even potential sequestration into the future if you were to conserve that area. I mean, this is fantastic technological advances. Each one of those maps took us years to put together. And you can even stack those maps up. You know, what we call the resilient and connected network is a network that stacks up climate resilient areas with source biodiversity areas and within that climate flow network. And you can think about how your conservation could add to that network. We released that tool last year. It, it had been coming out, you know, in the Northeast and in the Southeast and in the Great Lakes. It, so piece by piece, and then we finally released the whole country and it's getting an enormous amount of use. And we're just excited to get that information. If you were a land trust, you could use that information to plan where you wanna make acquisitions or how you might wanna manage this land or how close you are to the nearest secured land or how much carbon is in your yard. I feel like geography has been an underlying theme for our conversation. I, I noticed that some folks on your team have the title of spatial ecologist. How does geography play in and contribute to your work? You know, I learned ecology sort of non-spatially, you, and you probably did too. You know, 
you learn about principles and how things work. But once you really get out on the landscape, everything is spatial. Trees react with their neighborhood right around them. That's, that's who they're interacting with. Animals move through these local neighborhoods and they sort out territories and they use them. And, and really geography is, it's like we live in a physical world and we can't really disconnect from that world. And so geography becomes a, the underlying principle that maintains a lot of these processes. It seems that we're heading into a very dynamic time in, in human history and natural history. How do we begin to broker setting places aside? How do we, how do we help uh, achieve that resiliency and, and getting sort of the public to realize the critical nature of, of protecting nature mm-hmm. as a benefit to their own well-being? You know, first we have to motivate people that this strategy will work, you know, because that's important. And so preserving a a static piece of land is not going to do anything because everything's changing. That's not true, (laughs) you know, but it's taken us a while to sort of express, you know, we can identify places that are, are buffered from climate change where species persist longer and that will have species in the future. So a lot of these places, they have great They support great nature now, and they will support maybe different nature, but it will still be diverse and productive, you know, in the future. So just getting that concept out is important start, you know, and the analogy I finally figured out that works (laughs) is talking about baseball. In any year in baseball, you like get attached to the team and the exact players on the team and you want them forever. But in fact, you know, you can't keep the same players there forever. And if you focus too much on just them, the whole system could fall apart. And I think we start to think about conservation like that. We need these places. We need them in high quality and condition. And we need to start thinking about what's coming in and what's going out. <laughs> That's It's fascinating that um, appreciating and accepting that the change and dynamic nature of what's in front of us is fundamental to exploring strategies for resiliency. Everything in nature comes in family units and everything starts as like little individuals that don't know how to survive. And so we need places where nature can reproduce and produce offspring and they can survive and live to find their own mates. You know, those are called source areas in the biological ecological literature. It seems that in our modern world, humans feel increasingly detached from nature, Um, that these critical ecosystem services you're describing, which are fundamental to both adapting from the challenges we're facing and achieving better human well-being, that we're we're sort of forgetting that. What are strategies for helping reaffirm its importance for the well-being of all life on Earth? Lately, I've been reflecting on the implications of our bad science. So let me start there. You know, when I was in elementary school, I really, you know, I learned really that plants were sort of this inert living material. (laughs) A living, they said living thing, I guess. So thing was like, it's not, it's not really alive. It's this material that we have out there that we can eat. And I learned that animals were kind of these mechanical, you know, things that operated on instinct. And, you know, I'd say, how do they know how to do that? And I'd be like, oh, they just know it's just instincts. Like we've taught a generation of humans that nature is, is sort of 
not alive and boring. You know, <laughs> there's no relationship or interaction or stimulation with that kind of world around us. And that kind and that kind of thinking also justified, well, you can just do whatever you want with it, you know, just move it out of the way if you don't want it there. It's, you know, it's just this stuff. <laughs> it's just this stuff you move around. So we've really sort of deanimated the world for ourselves. How do we need to adopt and accept other mindsets for our use of resources? What what are the other worldviews that we need to be more inclusive of as we um, acknowledge the situation we're in and take hopefully new approaches going forward? You know, certainly in North America, the indigenous perspective on nature as relatives that we interact with, we live with, we uh, we use, but we also sustain, you know, and that sustains us is to me, that's where conservation should try to get, you know, that, that's where Western style conservation, it, it needs to go. So I think that they are our natural partners, our natural teachers, really. I'm the board chair for a small land trust in New England called Northeast Wilderness Trust. And we've developed this great relationship with the Native Land Conservancy. Right now, we're just trying to learn from each other, you know, and it's really just an open conversation that I think is probably one of the most exciting things that's for my life that's happening in conservation is just just learning and interacting. You know, when I was in my 20s, I lived in San Francisco and I worked at the Arboretum was called Striving Arboretum and Botanical Garden. And it had, it has collections. Have you been to Golden Gate Park? Have you ever walked in this garden? I've not made it. Nope. Okay. It's, it's in Golden Gate Park. It's, it's outside. It's open to the public. It's wide open to the public. And it has collections of plants from Chile, Southern Africa, New Zealand, Japan, native California. And we were really interested at that time that really only sort of white Americans were ever coming into the garden, even though it was free. And so I was working there and we tried to develop what we called ethnobotany at the time, histories of some of the plant collections that we could reach out to some of the communities in the city and try and attract them to come out. You know, So I'm thinking of this Chilean program, reach out to the Chilean community, get them into the Arboretum, and then show them, here are some plants from Chile, you know? So I had, I had worked on this program and I had all, you know, I have pages of notes on each plant and I had investigated how it was used and what the Chilean name was. And I thought this was a great idea, but it was so eye-opening when the first group arrived, just a bunch of older, older Chilean families with this one woman who I wasn't even sure she was going to even make it out to where the Chilean collection was. But when we got out there, it was like she started running and she started crying and they knew these plants and they just started talking and they were celebrating. And I was like, oh, my God, I realized boy, every culture has their own long history with nature. And if we want to open up conservation, we should just be tapping into all the cultural histories with nature that are out there, you know, because instead of this one narrative that we tell about conservation which is roosevelt and john muir and i mean that's a that's a true narrative i'm not saying it's wrong but that's just one of like thousands do you have any guidance about how we find common ground how your how your work or or 
geography or uh, describing the reality of this all-encompassing challenge can help us mitigate outcomes that are that are sustainable. I you know I think my angle on that is purely from a scientist. You know I I think I look at it as this huge challenge. As sort of, it's a solvable problem. I didn't used to be sure that it was a solvable problem. Now I think this is a problem that we now have the science and the understanding to actually solve. And that itself is this huge step forward. We've learned what we've done wrong. We've learned what we have to do. We start to know how these systems work and what it will take to retain them, these systems and allow them to, to develop their resilience and allow them to change. But I also understand that, you know, that's great. <laughs> that's great, but it's a political world. And how we create the political will, I'm not sure. I, but I do hope that having good science will help inspire that political will, you know. And I have been surprised sometimes by people that think they're in opposition when they actually see the reality of the plans. It's it's something they can get behind. Their opposition is more to an imagined land grab than to a real solution on the ground. So the Nature Conservancy is great at creating solutions in places that work and then marketing those to show other communities, this is what worked here, let's try this. Mark, it's been such an education speaking with you today. It's, it's so inspirational to learn about your work and your contribution and your team at TNC addressing the extraordinary challenges. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's been fun talking with you, David. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Our podcast. And thanks to Mark Anderson for explaining how location technology is improving the science of conservation in a time of accelerating climate change. If you like this podcast, please share it with a colleague. To learn more about how location intelligence drives sustainability and climate resilience, visit esri.com forward slash sustainability.